List and hearken, gentlemen, that be of free-born blood. I shall tell you of a good yeoman. His name was Robin Hood. Good evening, I'm Pierce Brosman. He is a legend that goes by many names. The Earl of Huntington, Robin of Loxley, Robert Fitzsooth, and Robert Hood. But to centuries of storytellers, he is simply Robin Hood. Who was this outlaw? Did he actually exist? Was he real or just a medieval myth carried on for 800 years? It is a question that scholars still debate today. And for the next hour, we will explore the myth of the hooded man. Was he fact or fiction? Tonight, we will find out. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth of Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time the man, the myth, the movie, Andrew of Raphael. Aha! And for our latest episode, we're taking to Nottingham Forest to shoot our arrows into Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the Kevin Costner-starring parody of the more historically accurate Mel Brooks epic, <laughs> Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> But is this folklore yarn a swashbuckling good time, or is it so bad it leaves us calling off Christmas? Find out after the trailer. A time of war. A time of homecoming. time when the only way to uphold justice was to break the law. He gave the people the courage to fight. Xanax promoter Kevin Costner stars as the English folklore legend Robin Hood. 
in an adaption that features such stalwart British actors as Morgan Freeman, Christian Slater, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Michael McShane, and Michael Wincott. Finally, a film that puts us Brits on the wrong side of cultural appropriation. <laughs> After escaping from a Jerusalem prison, Robin of Loxley returns to England on the shores of Sussex and proceeds to his home in Nottingham via Hadrian's Wall. Which, for anyone who doesn't know British geography, is like travelling from Earth to the moon via the fucking sun. <laughs> <laughs> Once home, Kevin of Costner finds himself seeking revenge for being upstaged in his own movie by the effortlessly charismatic Alan Rickman, who, as the Sheriff of Nottingham, repeatedly manages to make sexual assault fun. Well, it's the most fun the whole family can have with a movie that ends with an attempted rape scene since Back to the Future. So, Andy, what is your prior experience with Alan Rickman's Nottingham Sheriff of Bastards? <laughs> yeah, this is another one of my um, dad's videos. Oh, is it? It's a bluey. Is this one that he used to keep in his wardrobe? <laughs> yeah. Below all the magazines? and Yeah, it's another one of my dad's, not taped off the telly videos, but proper official VHS. We had this big old chest of drawers where the videos were kept, which usually included things like the aforementioned Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And um, sitting within that melee was Kevin Costner is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's full title. And um, never saw it. <laughs> Oh, right. I was going to say, I thought you were like setting this up to be like some sort of like family tradition, you know, and every year we would gather around the little telly box. <laughs> uh, no, I do remember my dad watching it, though, because I think I walked in on the scene where Fanny is giving birth and I remember it traumatizing me. And I think I saw a shot of the um, the witch as well. And from that point onwards, I just logged it in my mind as being that scary film. Yeah, that weird one. Yeah. And outside of that, it was just lumped in with it's difficult to imagine now i suppose but at that period of time kevin costner was everywhere yeah when so much centered around one particular actor in a very concentrated period of time that's something we don't really get these days but he was everywhere like a rash yeah from the untouchables all the way up until probably Waterworld. yeah it was just concentrated costner <laughs> all the way through that period. It was just concentrated Costner being shot all over us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he did three huge films back-to-back -back with days in between each project. Yeah. Dances with Wolves, Robin Hood, and then JFK, which all came out within about an 18-month period. Yeah, this is like peak Costner period, really, isn't it? This is like the peak of his power. Yeah, this is the rich seam of Costner. But yeah, I associate it with being part of that period of time, and obviously we're going to talk about that song. Do we have to? We have to, yeah. That's burned into the period as well. It's strange that I have such vivid memories of it, but never actually saw the film. And I've never seen the film. It's one of those films, again, where I've seen it. I've seen it in full, but always out of sequence. Um, yeah, yeah. I've always watched like the last 40 minutes or... The first 40 minutes or the middle 40 minutes. <laughs> so this is my first time watching it and also watching the extended version as well. Yeah. And um, just a really strange watch, I would say, for me. Mm. Yeah, that's as much as I'm going to say about it anyway. No, that's okay. Yeah, so for myself as well, I mean, I chose this as well for a Christmas episode because although there's nothing particularly Christmassy about it apart from that one line, you know, <laughs> 
cancel Christmas. Yeah. There is something that feels intrinsically Christmassy about this film because yeah. it's always on at this time of year. It was always the event film that was on BBC One on some Sunday afternoon during the Christmas period. Yeah, it will be broadcast in that time between Christmas Eve to New Year's Day, which is when this yeah. episode will be coming out anyway, so it's very exactly, appropriate. Exactly, yeah. For me personally as well, I don't actually remember the first time I saw this film. It's just something I've always seen. It was probably some Christmas many years ago, you know, I circled out in the radio times or or something along those lines. (laughs) TV quick. TV quick. Uh, But I will say for this episode, I had never seen the extended director's call, which had apparently been released on DVD prior. But I just obtained the 4K Arrow release of the film, and um, I did manage to get to see the extended version for the first time. And for, I would say, the first hour and a half of it, I was like, where's the extra stuff? <laughs> Where This is the same film. I thought I'd put on the wrong version. But yeah, I did finally get around to watching it. And there is something of a history between the two cuts of the film and how they came to be yeah. as well, which we'll get into as the episode goes on. But yeah, I thought... Choosing it for this particular episode coming out at this particular time, it felt right. It felt right. And this may only extend to people of our generation that um, had this film in their life consistently at this time of year. Our American friends may not feel the same way. It may be a different kind of film for them. Yeah, yeah. So it it is my Christmas present to you all. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and start to really dissect what all that's about i guess it's time to go over some context and really set up where this film came from who was behind it and how it came to be made so i have done some research on the topic as well there's a fantastic documentary on the arrow 4k which does go into some of the making of information but there's other bits and bobs that i've managed to curate from here there and everywhere so this film really does begin with its writers and producers who are Penn Densham and John Watson. Now, Penn Densham wanted to write something about Robin Hood, and he does have a writing and producing partner, who is John Watson. And they got together and wrote a 92-page treatment. However, they could not find a buyer for that treatment, or anybody really to pay them to write it. So they did the thing that you're not supposed to do as writers, which is they wrote a spec script. They just... They felt so strongly about what they were writing, they decided to just go ahead and and write it. Still, nobody bought it. (laughs) However, there is something that happened during the late 80s which did impact the film industry in a big way, and that was the 1988 writer's strike, which lasted for 22 weeks. It is the longest writing strike in the Guild's history. Mm. I mean, we've seen the writer's strike before and the effect that that has had on films. Uh, I think the last time was uh, around Quantum of Solace. Yes. And when that was released, that was a writer's strike movie. Yep. And that was a relatively short one. It certainly didn't last 22 weeks. It was uh, No, no. It was not as impactful as this one. However, it still did have a huge chain reaction on the industry and in terms of like the making of films for the coming months of, uh, for studios. It's like pulling out a Jenga tower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just the, the domino. It's yeah. the domino effect. And yeah, so since this was a very long writer's strike at the end of it, 
the uh, studios essentially had, they were desperate for f the finished article. So they were not looking for scripts to develop. They were looking for the completed thing. And Penn Densham and John Watson, the, their script was just in the right place at the right time. And they managed to get it to Morgan Creek, who, when they read it, thought it was, I think they said it was like gold. It was fried gold. <laughs> and they immediately funded the film and quickly started shopping it out for talent. Now, this is where things get a, a little bit murky as to who joined the film first, because we have the two Kevins now. This is where the two <laughs> Kevins come into the picture. And we have Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner. And I've read in various places that Kevin Costner was the first one on board, and I've read in other places that it was Kevin Reynolds. But it seems that they were both pursued as a package. They wanted the two of them. They knew that if they got one they would get the other. It sounds like they didn't know where one started and the other one finished. So they managed to obtain the talents of Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner, um, who had a prior working relationship on the film Fandango, which was Kevin Reynolds' first film. Um, I believe it was based on a student film, and it's a coming-of-age tale about the early 1970s, some kids in a car going to Mexico or New Mexico or somewhere yeah, like that yeah. on an adventure. And uh, the car breaks down. It's about just how they travel across the country. Yeah. And I also believe Kevin Reynolds assisted Kevin Costner in the making of Dances with Wolves on a few sequences as well. Yes, yes. The buffalo scene, yeah, I think, is yeah. the um, one of the scenes in which people say that he helped out with most. It's weird as well that they are essentially two directors, really, when, when we look at it. I mean, we always yeah. think of Kevin yeah. Costner as, as the actor, but they are essentially two directors. They have such a turbulent history with each other. They yeah. don't always get along. And they seem to have their spats on films that can often overtake the films itself. Yeah. And yet Kevin Reynolds still maintains that he enjoys working with Kevin Costner because not only does he get to work with his favourite actor, he gets to work with his favourite director, is what he says. <laughs> they're brothers, man. They're brothers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And judging from the uh, director's commentary, which is uh, Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner uh, talking over the film. This was recorded, I think, for the DVD release of the film, so mm -hmm. the early noughties. And they seem to get along so well. They're quite fun together, they're funny together, they have lots of jokes. It doesn't seem like there's any animosity there, but for some reason or another, they regard each other highly, and yet they can't seem to get along when they're making films together. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like they're the best of friends, but when they start to work with each other they start to clash to the point where by the end of the film, no one wants to talk to each other. They're probably a little bit too similar to each other. I think so, yeah. Clash of personalities, I think that's the issue, where it works well as a friendship, but when it turns into a working relationship, it has um, quite a few issues. Yeah. Uh, just moving back onto the production, another reason that this film came together quite as quick as it did at this time, not just because of the writer's strike, but also following the acquisition of the script, it came to light to Morgan Creek that there were also two other Robin Hood productions in development at the time. Yes. So there was one with 20th Century Fox and there was one with TriStar. Now, I think there may had actually been some, uh, like a race to beat Fox in particular to the punch considering that Morgan Creek had a prior relationship with them. Yeah, yeah. And I don't actually know who was involved with those previous films. Do you have any information on that, by the way? Oh, God, um... 1991 British film, yeah, the John Irvin, executive produced by John McTiernan, apparently, as well, starring Patrick Bergen, oh, course, yeah. Uma Thurman, 
Jürgen Prochnow and Jerome Crabbe. That is one of those films that I always forget exists. I, yeah, I remember now that it was supposed to be a John McTernan directed version, but he dropped out of the production. I don't think he could get as the control over the film that he wanted. Yeah, it's weird as well that that film did actually come out before this one. That film came out in the May and this one came out in June, but I think what had happened was, I reckon, you know, you're comparing a film starring Patrick Bergen yes, with a film starring Kevin Costner. There's going to be a lot more buzz around a film starring Kevin Costner at this point, mm-hmm. to the point where it, I don't think it really mattered what point in the year that other film was going to be released. It was always going to be seen as the other Robin Hood film. Yeah. Well, it still is. It's one of those films that every now and again I see the poster for and I'm like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) You know, like, that's not Prince of Thieves. And I still haven't got around to watching it. It's still one of those curios that's on the list to finally get around to seeing. But It's got a $15 million budget, so it's not like a a small film or anything. It's not made for chump change. No, I mean, it's definitely a a mid-budget film in comparison to this one. Yeah. I mean, this one did go over budget as well uh, for various reasons. Shooting in the UK at that time, I think they shot for 100 days over here. I don't know why they shot for 100 days over here, considering that they weren't interested in historical accuracy or even in terms of the actors that they used. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they could have shot it in California or somewhere, and it could have been the same movie. It's so loose with its history and and the actors that it's chosen for all the the leading parts. I think it was more down to things like... um weather issues because they were filming in wintertime. Yeah. I don't know whether you have the specific shooting dates, but it, by all accounts, it was late 1990. Yeah, it was fall into winter yeah. is the shooting period for the film. So, yeah, I mean, that is the worst time to film over here. They did say they had some unseasonable stretches of sunlight, which was great for the film, but... Mm. Once the weather turned, it turned in a big way, as it does over here. Yeah, yeah. I guess somebody else to really talk about in regards to this film. I, I have bits and bobs on um, little facts here that I'll get into as we talk about the, the film. But one person who I want to speak of is Alan Rickman. And yeah. it seems to be that they chased him for quite a significant period of time during this film, during the production of this film. So much, in fact. And he, he said he didn't want to do it. He said he, he didn't want to play another villain following Die Hard because that's all that people offered him was villainous roles. And I think they just kept on coming back to him with another offer and another offer. And it was actually a week into filming that they managed <laughs> to secure Alan Rickman as the villain. It still boggles my mind that the filming of, of the production without such a key role filled. Mm. And when he did join on, there is uh, Alan Rickman did let loose in a interview that <laughs> he didn't think much of the script so he brought on his uh, writing friends ruby wax and peter barnes to punch up his lines in a script and they were all taken on board as well by the director <laughs> legend has it that they bashed out all these additional lines while sitting in a pizza hut <laughs> which makes a lot of sense it's very pizza hutty the dialogue yeah that's it it was uh, the new pages were spattered with tomato sauce and <laughs> dry parmesan cheese it's like whoa these pages are a bit whiffy oh it feels very much like dialogue that would have been like everyone's sitting around the table in a restaurant like right this having a laugh yeah. this is shit what do you want to replace that with but uh yeah thank goodness <laughs> that yeah, you did do absolutely 
And one other actor who I want to mention is the the amazing Sean Connery, who was required for one day of filming. Now, they always wanted somebody of a certain stature to play that particular role. It was always just a day for filming and a cameo role, and they wanted somebody like Sean Connery. I think they had John Cleese in yeah, mind originally. Yeah. But Sean Connery has a prior working relationship with Kevin Costner. So does John Cleese, though. Oh, yeah, of course he does, yeah. They're both in uh, Silverado. Yeah, maybe that's why they had those two in particular yeah, as being yeah. the two that they wanted. But I think Sean Connery best fits the part, actually, yeah, as well. Yeah, I think so. In terms of his stature and the cinematic history. And he did have one day available for filming, just one day available, because he was uh, travelling back home to L.A., where he lived at the time, and on the day prior filming, he was actually visiting the Pope. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he was in between golf tournaments. <laughs> no, I know that sounds yeah, like it. A day in between yeah. golf holidays. <laughs> well, there's a thing about his pay for this as well, which yeah. became like a thing that he was known for with all of his later in life productions, which was he wanted his fee to be donated to a charity in, in Scotland, you yeah, know, which is yeah. something that I think happened with all of his films from like yeah. the nineties onwards, uh, which is great for him. He wanted originally a million, a million pounds or a million dollars for the production uh, for this day of filming, but they eventually settled on 250 grand, which went to a hospital in Scotland, which is fantastic, really, you know? Yeah. So that is um, Sean Connery's, as far as he went with this film as well. His authentic portrayal. <laughs> it's very authentic portrayal of Sean Connery. Every, everything he does, his accent work is unparalleled. Yeah. I'm surprised he didn't get an Oscar nom for this. Oh, yeah. To be fair, everybody's accent work on this film is pretty amazing. Oh, fuck, yeah. Oh, dear. I did listen to the director's commentary, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, as Kevin Costner on board as well. And... Um, the moment that Robin Hood arrives um, at the Seven Sisters in Sussex and he climbs out of the boat and kisses the sand, <laughs> Costner interjects straight away, well, there's my dumbass accent again. <laughs> and it seems that he and Reynolds, during the making of the film, had they had some conflict over whether or not he should have an accent. Kevin Costner wanted to attempt an accent. Yeah. But Reynolds didn't want him to. He just wanted him to just play it as Kevin Costner. Yeah. So that's yeah. why, like, early on, you can hear the attempt at an accent, just like the odd twinge here and there. Yeah. And then as the film goes on, because that shot was day one yeah. on the production, so that's where you can hear it most. But throughout the film, you can hear that it just it disappears slowly <laughs> into the film itself. Yeah, I mean, it's barely there at all, to be honest. Like, his attempt yeah. is so poor that you could be forgiven for thinking that he just did an American accent all the way through. It's very American Amdram. Yes. That's the best yeah, way I can put it. I think the one that stands out for me as like the one that takes the most attention away is Michael McShane as Friar Tuck. Yeah. There's nothing about the performance in general that feels rooted to like any kind of English setting whatsoever of that period. No, he's, he's playing a guy at the end of a bar. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just to summarise on the context as well before we move on to our opinions, because I can feel I can feel it starting again, that thing yeah. that we always do where we talk about the context and suddenly find ourselves debating the film. One last thing really is that there was some issues with the editing of the film, which is how we've ended up with the two cuts. Yeah. On the documentary, they actually talk about 
the breaking point being the line that Christian Slater says, which is, once Morgan Freeman and Kevin Costner are catapulted over the castle walls, <laughs> he says, fuck me, they made it. Yeah. And they said in test screenings, the audience just howled with laughter at that point. It was like, it was a real comedic beat for the film. However, the studio hated it. And it was at that point they realized that they had lost control over the editing suite, is what they said, and demanded that it was cut. The editors refused to cut it. Kevin Reynolds refused to cut it as well. And he refused to cut a handful of other scenes as well, which I would assume are the Sheriff of Nottingham scenes that they felt were starting to take away the attention from Robin Hood. Yeah. And so Kevin Reynolds made the decision, apparently, to walk away from production. And since he walked, his editors followed and the studio took over in the final weeks of production. And this is, I mean, this is all like 11th hour stuff. And a few weeks later, it was really, it was premiered. And Kevin Reynolds refused to go to the premiere of the film and the theatrical cut came out. I guess we'll get into, as well as we talk, have you seen the theatrical cut of this film? Or is that just something that you've seen in segments? That is just something I've seen in, in segments. Right, got you. So really, we're going at this from a director's cut point of view. I, I mean, I'll talk about the theatrical cut as well as we go, but... I guess this is more of a director's cup discussion. Yeah, and I have an understanding of the scenes that were cut out, uh, mainly involving the sheriff of Nottingham and and his mom. Yes, that kind of thing. So straight from the off, though, I would say the difference that the director's cut makes in a positive way is that the beginning of the film, where we get to see Brian Blessed <laughs> as Robin's father, we see this Sheriff of Nottingham cult outside, this like satanic cult that he is a part of. Yeah, that seems yeah. to play a lot more into this film. That was always something in a theatrical cult that I was like, why are they dressed like the Ku Klux Klan? <laughs> why are they dressed in cult robes? This never comes back at all in the remainder of the film. Mm. And it, it seemed to hint at something. I had no idea that the director's cut actually played more on that particular topic. I just thought it was something that they thought, oh, it looks cool for this scene, we'll do it. But a whole Satanism thing, apparently they said it was something that they wanted to explore from around that period, mm. plays a much bigger part in the director's cut. I would say all of the scenes that were cut were around that particular topic. Yeah, yeah. So I do think it becomes a slightly more coherent film but I'll ask Andy, what are your thoughts on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? As somebody who has been something of an outsider for this, coming at it fresh, what did you think of this film? Um, I have no idea how this is going to go. It's one of those films that looks like a really good movie. All the production design is in place. You've got great people like John Graysmark doing the production design. Yep. Really good DOP. Uh, was it uh, Douglas Milson? The sets look great. The stunts are great. It's a lavish-looking film. It sounds great. Yep. Uh, it's got wonderful music by Michael Kamen. It's got some really nice supporting parts as well from some of the English actors. Obviously, the Alan Rickman factor. Yep. But I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the script is a pile of shit, to be honest. It's not a good script. You, you, yeah. You can see where Alan Rickman's coming from. Oh, uh, yeah, you can, yeah. It's just filled with so many cliches and bad geography, melodrama. Yep. And I think that's impacted by the just absolutely fucking bizarre casting. Yeah. Which is filled with some roles which are 
incredibly appropriate. And then mm-hmm. others which I just don't understand why they would be in the film to the point where it gets a bit embarrassing mm-hmm. at times. And I feel like the tone of the film has been messed up massively as well because it has. people have been pulling it in all sorts of different directions. So I think it's one of those films where if you just watched it on mute, it would be perfectly fine. <laughs> I've actually written in my notes that a score-only version of this film, maybe like a score and foley-only version of this film. Silent movie. <laughs> it, yeah, it yes. would be the, yes. the best version of this film. Yeah. That's actually straight here in my notes here. I mean, one of the things I mentioned about the score was that I love how the score sounds like a galloping horse. You know, it's like... And I was like, oh, he's just... He's got that right. It just feels like that kind of like swashbuckling adventure because it feels like men on a horse on an adventure together. Yeah. And if only the writing had that kind of like complexity, that kind of subtlety to it. (laughs) Yeah. It would... It would be a much better affair. Weirdly enough, I would say of the American cast, I think the only two people that I would actually keep if you were to keep their characters are mm. I love Michael Wincott. Yeah. And I don't mind Morgan Freeman. I think he, he as a zim, he really kind of lends that role some I guess it's because he's next to Kevin Costner throughout the entire film, but he has some screen presence and charisma. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how credible he is as a uh, a Moorish person, though. As a Muslim, yeah. As a... And his accent is a little janky at times. It certainly is. Yeah, I don't know quite what he's going for with some of it. No. But it's Morgan Freeman, so... Exactly. Enough said. The thing I was going to mention as well, and this plays into the Morgan Freeman character, is that they were trying to pass this off as a, a fresh new take on Robin Hood, but in fact many of the elements right down to Robin Hood's costume and the addition of that Azim character all completely cribbed off of uh, Robin of Sherwood which was an ITV yeah. series made in the mid 80s and a lot of credit really has to go to that TV series for modernizing Robin Hood yeah and this film just took liberally from that series ironically also starring Jason Connery in the second uh, half of that series oh. as Robin. Because in that version, I think it's quite similar to the other BBC series that they made in the 2000s where the original Robin Hood, spoilers, was killed off halfway through the series and then another person took his place. And that person was Jason Connery. So uh, a yeah. little bit of a connection there between the two. Wow. That's another one where they cast British actors in the parts where you've got Ray Winston playing Will Scarlet and Clive yeah. Mantle yeah. playing Little John. I remember this from my childhood. Yeah. So. And I get that it's a, a big Hollywood film, but wow. Yes. It sends it right back to that 1930s way of making these films where it was all all made in LA. And it completely takes you out of the film. I, I didn't find myself engaged with the film very much because there were so many things that were playing against it that were just taking me out of the movie constantly. And like we said before, the biggest issue is Kevin Costner himself, who is horrendously miscast in the role. Yeah. And the thing is, as well, it's like, I would say, oh, he's too old to play the part. But I'm pretty sure, in fact, he was only 35, 36, so our age, 
when he made the film. Kevin Costner, the actor, always comes across as somebody who's older than he is anyway. In every single role that he's ever played, he's 46. Exactly, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like he was, you know, that 15-year-old at school that was talking about doing taxes and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? he's always been in his mid-40s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but something to the point as well in regards to the uh, uh, Morgan Freeman character, Azim, one thing on the documentary that the writers talk about is that they thought it was a progressive stance to have to place a Muslim character as a sidekick to Robin Hood in a kind of like lethal weapon buddy comedy type way. Mm. And like, I do think it, in some ways, yeah, that is quite progressive. And in other ways, such as, as you mentioned, the casting of Morgan Freeman and um, the presentation of... I would say Muslim culture in this film. <laughs> um, it is not not quite as progressive as one might think. No, no. They talk as well about getting away with some of the inconsistencies because, uh, like the Robin Hood thing, is a folklore tale anyway. I mean, anywhere you go in the in the UK, there's some story of how Robin Hood went there. It went to some particular pub or inn or somewhere, mm. you know, somewhere. There's stories about him in Yorkshire and Whitby. There's stories about him down south as well. But I'd say even with that, it's still an intrinsically British... I mean, I say that, I think it has even, like, French. But it feels like intrinsically British story, uh, like, character. And to give it to the most American guy, Kevin Costner... Yeah, it's intrinsically Northern European story. It does feel like incredible miscasting. At least if, if they would have given it to an American that could do an accent you know, that could take on on that role. But the problem with Kevin Costner, and I like Kevin Costner, I really like Kevin Costner. There are plenty of films that he's in that I like. Yeah, I mean, if you put him in the right film in the right role. Yeah. Like, I love him in JFK. Exactly, yeah. Which is a film he made directly after this. So there's nothing to do with, with that. It's the fact that it's, yeah, Kevin Costner playing Robin Hood. But that's it. It just feels like there's not one point in this film that I'm watching it thinking, that's Robin Hood. It's always, that's Kevin Costner yeah, doing yeah. a terrible, terrible <laughs> non-accent. Yeah. I guess as well, to give my opinion of the film, considering what I've just mentioned, I have always described this as being the most three-star movie that you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, is, it truly is. Yeah. I enjoy it. I have a fun time with this film. But it is the most three-star film that you'll ever see. From a production standpoint, there's plenty I really enjoy about the yeah, film. Yeah, It does feel like the right film to have on during this Christmas period. You know, when you've got family around, you put it on in the background, the kids sit down to watch it, they watch 20 minutes, do some playing, watch 20 more minutes, that kind of thing. It's something that you can dip in and out of and really yeah, not miss yeah. anything. And that's how I've always interacted with this film as well, and it feels very much like that. At the same time, you've got performances from the likes of Alan Rickman, who is just, every time he's on screen, he's just like, wow, this film, this is so good. This is so much fun. If only everybody else was on this level. <laughs> if We had this with, uh, with Waterworld as well, where it's like yeah. Dennis Hopper in Waterworld was just the only guy that kind of got what the film needed and what it was yeah. about. And it's the, uh, it's the same with Alan Rickman here. He kind of... He gives the film what it needs and that nobody else can give. I find it weird, though, as well, though, because it's so undisciplined to the point where, although I love Alan Rickman's scenes, it's just something where it's like, yeah, he's actively trying to sabotage the film. And it's just balmy, the fact that you have this huge, big-budget film and you have an actor who's 
on screen taking the piss out of this film. It's rather wonderful, but mm. the very idea of it just beggars belief, really. <laughs> I need to look at his filmography because I have a funny feeling he doesn't do any kind of roles like this ever again. And maybe for that reason. It's a shame, though, if, if that's the case. Because if you were a studio wanting him in your film, despite the fact that he's done Die Hard, if you're wanting him in your film that costs a lot of money, he may have been looked at as a bit of a liability in that kind yeah. of area. Because it is, it is so, like, he's literally just ripping everything up and going, fuck this, I'm just doing my own thing. So I'm just, I am just just want to look at his filmography because I, I very much doubt that there's... Yeah, he didn't do any films like this until Galaxy Quest, which was eight years later. So in the middle period, yeah. he, he did much smaller films which I imagine suited him as well, because like you were saying before, he, he didn't want to get typecast as this kind of part. Yeah. So yeah, he did films like Sense and Sensibility and Michael Collins yeah. and Dogma and stuff like that. Uh, and yeah, he didn't do like a big budget American family film until Galaxy Quest and obviously Harry Potter. Yeah, and that's like the big one. And the thing with Alan Rickman as well, going back to his start in the industry. It's like, yeah, Die Hard was the film that put him into the industry as as a star, like a ready-made star kind of thing. But really, mm. look at the films that he made afterwards as well, like Truly Madly Deeply. That was another yeah. one that was kind of like a hit over here. That was more towards, I guess, what he wanted to do as well as an actor. But Alan Rickman has a very weird reputation in the industry when it comes to people doing parodies of his work. Like, there's a very famous Family Guy sketch where... They do like a recording of Alan Rickman's voice message on his phone and it's like, hello, Alan, this is me, Alan. You know, and he's talking in that very kind of like deliberate and controlled way. Yeah. But I don't think that's Alan Rickman. I think that's Snape. That's like Severus yeah. Snape. Yeah. Alan Rickman is is far, far bigger and far more fun than yeah. I think people give him credit for. Yeah, sure, in Die Hard, he's a little bit more controlled kind of thing. As that film goes on, but he still has his outburst. But then you look at films like, you know, Truly Madly Deeply, you look at Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, even films like Dogma and Galaxy Quest. He's a character actor that knows when to go big and can go big and seems to have a lot of fun in those roles as well. And yet everybody has this kind of like perception of him as being, well, like as they cast him in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android, you know, that kind of like droll, controlled way of speaking. And I don't think that's Rickman at all. Like, no, this no. to me feels like Rickman in uh, Prince of Thieves. And I know that he's just having fun sending up the film that he's in. But in, in a way, I feel like that's exactly what the film needs because he's the only one that understands that he's in a pantomime. Yeah, yeah. And that is exactly how he's playing it. It's almost like he's egging on the audience to shout, it's behind you, and, you know, that type of thing, like boo and hiss when he's on screen. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is what it needs. At least it's having fun. And that is an issue with this film. Like, if I was to, to approach it critically and not just like, it's a mess, but I like it kind of thing, but to approach it critically, the biggest fault is in terms of its tone. It never knows what tone to strike and it's never more apparent than it is with robin hood as a character himself they don't quite know what they want him to be and kevin costner and kevin reynolds clearly had some sort of conflict over how this character should act because costner being costner he wanted apparently wanted robin hood to be far more stoic and his image in his mind of the character is the one that cuts his hand 
and makes a blood promise on his father's grave. And he's like, every time I wanted to get to the core of that character, that is the moment I thought about. And it's like, Ken Reynolds says, yeah, I want him to be a bit like cocky and, and brash and, you know, <laughs> egotistical and kind of like, ha-ha! Those things are in conflict constantly. And because of that, he doesn't manage to do either of those things. In some scenes, he's slightly kind of like boyish and and a little bit more fun. But most of the time, he's just like, like I say, he's just yeah. Xanaxed out. It's, uh, it's one of those films where the film works best when the leading man isn't in the film. Yes. <laughs> which is a problem. Because <laughs> he's in quite a large part of this film. And that goes down to even the side characters when you just have scenes with other side characters interacting with with each other when Robin Hood is not on the screen. It works fine. Yeah, It's a huge Kevin Costner-shaped hole in this film. I mean, yeah. he's not the only offender because I would say, you know, you've still got people like the other American cast members which just don't understand why they were cast. Even the fact that they got Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio to fill in as Maid Marian after Robin Wright had to pull out because she yeah. was pregnant. Why did they not find a, a British actress or a European actress to play that yeah. part? That just baffles me. Unless there was some sort of quota for having a certain percentage of American actors. It feels that way, doesn't it? In this film, and I don't know whether there was some sort of union thing at the time, I really don't know. I don't know if there was some sort of studio stipulation to kind of like, they wanted to maximise yeah, the yeah. Uh, the potential in America. But like, I mean, we're talking about a time in cinematic history as well when the international box office didn't mean as much to studios. No, no. And we've got to look at it that way as well. When you would do, yeah. The American box office dominated all when it came to like receipts so i guess like from a studio point of view they look at this this film's a robin hood film all english names no way that's gonna bomb over here mm. but you look at it with like christian slater and kevin costner and mary elizabeth master antonio and suddenly it's like oh wow yeah sure so i imagine it's it's like a studio stipulation that yeah. if you want the money for this film these are the kind of american names we want to see in it yeah i suppose we can look at this film as as a an end of an era film. Yes, yeah. Because I can't think of many other films. Maybe um, it's almost like a, a semi-sequel, but the uh, the Three Musketeers film that came two years later is yes, feels very yeah. much tied to this film, even down to the fact that it has another Brian Adams song yeah. in there. And I think maybe towards the late 90s and early 2000s, you started getting out of that, that whole thing. Yeah. I think one film which is another Kevin Reynolds-directed film that put the bed to it, was in the early noughties, we had that Tristan and Isolde film, which is another Kevin Reynolds film. Yeah. And that, again, James Franco in the leading role. Another kind of like British, or is it Irish folklore story? Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, cast with James fucking Franco. <laughs> you know, the most LA, California stoner dude you can think yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. And I think that as well, when that bombed, I think that's when we see really the end of those type of films. Yeah, and I think the advent of The Lord of the Rings yes, of and course. Gladiator, which even though they had international casts, they all made sure that everyone was speaking consistently. Because this one is just bizarre, it's all over the shop. It is, because we have Kevin Costner, who at times is doing a slight and very silly accent, and at other times doing no accent at all. Yeah. We have Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, who is doing an accent. Michael Wincott's doing an accent. 
And then you have like the Friar Tuck ca- character, Michael Michael McShane, and yeah. he is like you say, just sounds like somebody who sits at the end of an American bar, you yeah. know, drowning his sorrows. It's just an odd mix. And then you have Morgan Freeman's weird ass accent as well. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, Christian Slater being Christian Slater. Oh, Jesus, yeah, Christian <laughs> Slater as well. Yeah, it's got to be. I think we've just got to look at it in that context. But the English cast is, I would say, much much better. You know, you get your nice Brian Blessed cameo. It's a shame that they didn't keep him in a bit more of the film, so you could say, so you could say, Robin's alive. <laughs> I, you know like what? That. I was waiting for it. I actually had it in my notes to make that <laughs> joke at some point. He says yeah. Robin's alive. Yeah, I can't believe that they didn't do it. But yeah, he's in it for like one scene, and it's like suddenly, ah, yes, a little bit of gravitas. Yeah, Brian Blessed, you've got Nick Brimble as Little John, Harold yeah. Innocent as the Bishop, Walter Sparrow as Duncan, who's the blind guy, who I know most from... Um, Your Nightmares? No, he's in an episode of Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> in fact, my favourite episode of Only Fools and Horses is Danger UXD, and he uh, he runs a sex shop in that episode, and he's called Dirty <laughs> Barry. He does look <laughs> so, like a Dirty Barry, to yeah, be fair. That, he does. that is like expert casting. Yeah, and um, you've got Jack Wilde in a sort of blink-and-you-miss-it appearance as much, and obviously Jack Wilde is most famously known for being the Artful Dodger and the musical version of Oliver Twist. And Daniel Peacock as well, playing Bull. I like Daniel Peacock. Yeah. He's, he's, he's great in this. He's got a very kind of like distinctive look as well, Daniel Peacock. Um, even in this film, he's like one of the secondary, secondary actors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet, whenever he's in a frame, he does kind of steal the attention. Yeah. He's just one of those people that just has this kind of natural screen presence that draws your eye to him. Yeah. He's one of those people that I would, I'm surprised was never in a Pirates of the Caribbean film. Yeah, exactly. Because he's like really quite interesting looking. Yeah, he's very much in the, I'd say, in like the, um, the Stephen Graham school. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's strange that he's playing a side character in this because you want to follow him around <laughs> rather exactly, than Kevin yeah, Costner. Yeah. <laughs> And then obviously, yeah, you've got Geraldine McEwen playing uh, Mortiana. Uh, yeah. Very unrecognisable in this film, but she's more of like famous for playing Miss Marple and people like that. <laughs> she is, I would say, given the biggest glow up by the director's cut as well because we finally get some idea of what their relationship is in some sort of deeper meaning. I actually quite like her stuff with the Sheriff of Nottingham with Alan Rickman. I like that backstory that... yeah. The Sheriff of Nottingham is actually an imposter. It's actually her son. And she swapped the babies at birth and killed the true Sheriff of Nottingham. And that's why he has these kind of like satanic tendencies. Wouldn't it be great if they showed a flashback of that and she was like swapping the sons for like one tiny baby with another baby that has the Sheriff of Nottingham goatee, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That that would just be a great scene. That would be at home in like Mel Brooks's film. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mentioned this to Jess when we were watching it last night that those scenes were not in the theatrical cut and she was like... How? That changes everything. How does it work? Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole context of the film is altered with the excision of that scene. It's one of those few scenes as well where I would say the directing of it with them like staring directly into camera. Almost like a fisheye lens. Yeah. It's, it feels really surreal and unsettling. Yeah. And I was was like, this scene really works. It's a shame that it kind of was cut out because this, 
it really worked for me. And even the scene as well later on where we get the reintroduction of the cult and it finally pays off on who they are and what they stand for. And it's just, it's not a particularly long scene. I think it's only a couple of minutes long, but it does pay off from that opening scene in terms of the men and the cloaks. Without it, in the theatrical cut, you have no idea who those people are. No. no idea what they stand for or anything like Or even, like, I would say, what the Sheriff of Nottingham's endgame is. Yeah, you, you wouldn't know what he stood for anyway. In the extended version, as it is, I'd say the last 25 minutes work very well. Yeah. Because all those pieces are put into place and you've got a lot of action and it zips along. Like you were saying before, it being a Christmas movie that you can dip in and out of because I feel like watching this film non-stop, it's a bit of a chore at times because... There are moments which fall flat on their ass because they're either they're a bit dull or the performances just aren't there. Yeah. Any interaction with Robin and Marion is just dull and just a little bit embarrassing because it feels to me very American amateur dramatics. It does, yeah. And also because the dialogue's kind of meant to be ornate, but then it's been spoken with these American accents trying to sound posh. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. And it just dogs the film all the way through with stuff like that. Like you said, if you were watching it as a Christmas film, you can go off and play during those bits. And then whenever Alan Rickman or someone else like that is on screen, you can come back and watch you it. You come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the film as well is like two hours and 20 minutes long anyway. Yeah. And with adverts, it's probably, you know, approaching three hours at that time yeah, of year. Yeah. It, you do have the opportunity to kind of like just dip in and out and still get an idea of what the, the whole film is and then settle down for that last 20-minute action scene, which is admittedly very, very good. You can go off and make your turkey sandwich and come back again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can go off and make your turkey sandwich and come back and then watch Alan Rickman try and make his turkey sandwich at the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I can't believe, I'm very ill at the moment so that is why I'm uh, making such such terrible terrible jokes um, but yeah it's once more what is it with this period of time in films where suddenly it was like hey you know what's fun you know what's really fun to hang the end of our film on an attempted rape uh. it's like between this and back to the future it seems to be catering to a very 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 specific demographic of people people yeah. who have had to sign some sort of register in their life yeah i imagine at the time it would have been oh that's an awkward sex scene oh it's a bit risque you know oh. that kind of <laughs> i was gonna say you have to think about it at the time but these kind of things are like, they're never okay but it is bizarre to think that there was a time when something like that was looked at as um family friendly one family friendly but also as a piece of comedy yeah because they're always framed like that to try and make it okay at least alan rickman and mary elizabeth master antonio are seem to be having fun question mark in the role but like yeah. there are shots that make me go oh that's a bit off like that very fun shot of the sheriff of nottingham trying to open her legs with his yeah. legs yeah and it's like oh my word it just makes me feel very icky yeah. But at the same time, I can't believe I'm saying it, at the same time, because of those actors, because it's Alan Rickman, yeah, he's yeah. having a lot of fun. Some of his lines during that period, you know, during the wedding itself as well, he's nailing it. Maybe wrong choice of words. Yeah. But, <laughs> but he is. I like that bit where, you know, there's the I do's, the vows. 
and he's like, I do, and then it goes to her, and he puts his hand over her mouth and going, of course she does. I mean, it's the kind of scene that the anti-work brigade would applaud. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, get back we to the demand. good old days. Good old <laughs> we, days with these kind of scenes. We demand more sexual assault in our family-friendly yeah. films. <laughs> Just a bit of fun. <laughs> it's for the dads. Yeah, a little, a little bit for the dads. The kids won't know what's going on. No. They just think they're wrestling like mommy and dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, what an odd way to end the film. Yeah. Talking of odd, I mentioned this to you before we started the podcast, but we can't talk about this film without talking about the uh, the bizarre pre-release documentary that was made, oh, presented yeah. by, for some weird reason, Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> so not appearing in this film. <laughs> 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 who lets us know as well during the documentary itself that he's very good friends with Kevin Costner you oh. know I'm for hire Bond isn't happening so if you want me I'm very good friends with Kevin Costner you can feel the pain yeah as I so eloquently said in our Lone Mower Man episode this is Pierce Brosnan not having the best of times no no this is very dark days these are his wild days I mean you know? his wife's just died or about to die his career's kind of in tatters after his failure to get James Bond and the cancellation of Remington Steel and doing all these horrible B-movies like The Lawnmower Man and uh, what's that other one with the people blowing up? Livewire. Livewire, which will definitely be an episode on this show. It will be. So you've got all that and then it's like, do you want to come and present a um, a half-hour TV special on this big, huge film starring Kevin Costner that you're not in. And he's like, yes, but only if I can deliver every line of dialogue in the style of Alan Partridge. Oh, it's like he's on something to cope with the pain, and it's just it resulted yeah. in this ridiculous tranquilizers. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> you know that scene in I'm Alan Partridge where um, he's doing that little corporate video to camera on yeah. the narrow boat and the farmers are very unhappy with them so they launch a cow off a bridge and it lands <laughs> yeah. on Alan and then he has to deliver the rest of the corporate video whilst in a stretcher that's yeah. propped up whilst also on morphine that very much feels like what Pierce Brosnan's doing in this yeah. <laughs> but a short cow as he stated yeah yeah a short cow because cows yeah. were smaller back then yeah I mean if you've seen any pre-filmed segment in an Alan Partridge show, specifically Knowing Me, Knowing You. Maybe they watched this documentary and thought it, it was so I, I hilarious. I think they must that have. They used it because there's a pre-filmed segment in the Christmas special of Knowing Me, Knowing You, the Knowing Me, Knowing Yule, yes. where he talks about the history of Norwich and yes. it's, it's it, spot on. It, yeah, it's exact. If they'd seen this at the time and, and noted it down as a reference, it is spot on. I can't help but think this documentary has to have been a real inspiration to that. Right down to the hair. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's not just the hair, but even the mannerisms, you know, like the way that he moves his hands. Yeah. His cadence is, is exact. Yeah. I think, I think it, <laughs> it has to have been. So we are now crediting Pierce Brosnan as the inspiration <laughs> for Alan Partridge. Or at least one of them. <laughs> oh, my word. It has to have been. It's got to be. Wouldn't that just be the Christmas miracle we all deserve? I'd go on record as saying that that half-hour documentary is just as entertaining as watching the whole actual film. Yeah, it probably it's is. so bizarre. 
it's not just Pierce Brosnan who is admittedly like the main thing to watch this for, but also like, for example, when they go to Nottingham and they start interviewing <laughs> some like Vox popping some of just yeah. the random population of the town. And it's like some shop assistant who's like, oh, yes, I'm I'm related to Robin. I'm related to Robin Hood. Yeah, of course I am. It's like unintentionally funny. Yeah. <laughs> that man that owns a pub and he's like, oh, yeah, Robin Hood and Maid Marion used to come in here and have a drink. But obviously Sheriff of Nottingham got barred for that time that he came in and tried to cause the ruckus. Yeah. Okay. But the most magical part of the documentary on a more serious level is the section when it talks about the music. Because yeah. it's one of those little pieces of film that reminds you just how good of a composer Michael Kamen was. And um, he's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, Michael Kamen died in, like, 2003. I remember that um, I got the Band of Brothers CD as well, which is, like, his second-to-last thing that he did. Yeah. And it felt like, you know, you had to mourn kind of what you were missing out on, you know, the years that were stolen from him. But also that release as well felt like a culmination of his entire career. Yeah. Because it's an amazing score. With this particular film as well, I one thing I've got to say about Michael Kamen in terms of like his look is the guy looks like a rock and roll star, truly. Yeah. And obviously he has a background in rock and roll. But he looks like the how the beast should look in Beauty and the Beast when he turns back to human. Yeah. Like, that is how... Michael Kamen is how he should have looked, not the kind of wimpy guy that he is. Yeah, what just a, a great film composer, but also just a great arranger as well, because yeah. he's, he's written orchestral arrangements of so many amazing songs over the years. Like, obviously, all his work with Pink Floyd. Yep. Did a lot of work with, you know, people like Queensryche. The one that a lot of people, a lot of metalheads know him from was doing... Um, S&M with Metallica like yeah. he had a really expansive range very similar in a way to um James Newton Howard who also had a rock yes. background yeah who went into doing film music um given that I'm not particularly fond of the film it's probably one of his best scores yeah and also it's probably the score that's had the longest lasting legacy in a completely unrelated way because <laughs> when it started with the titles and I was like I've heard this before because yeah. it's um it's the Disney home video thing. Yeah. Well, it gets used in two places, so it gets used as the opening sting for any Disney Blu-ray that you buy. But also, yep. do you know when they um first started advertising Disney Blu-ray and there was an advert which like, you know, yes. we have our heading, that cue got used again in its full length, you know. Yeah, it did, yeah. Talk about recontextualizing your music. It's something that's always like struck me. I don't know how they got to use that. I mean, it's a Warner Brothers film. It has no ties to Disney, really, whatsoever. And yet they have managed to secure the rights for their home video department, which is just odd to me. And it's become the theme to their kind of like home video releases. I would go as far as to say that his score for this film is as important to the film as Alan Rickman's performance. Definitely. For everything everybody says about Alan Rickman's performance, that, you know, he's, he's stealing the film away from everybody else, he's chewing the scenery, he's big, he's entertaining, he makes the most of every single minute on screen. I would say that anytime you can hear Michael Kamen's music, it's doing exactly the same. Yeah. I think it's probably one of his best scores, but it's also, unfortunately, I would say, one of those scores that, much like Titanic that we mentioned uh, last time, is that 
it unfortunately had a song attached to it, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, which yeah. isn't necessarily a bad song or anything like that. No, it's just no. an, another kind of soppy romantic ballad. And obviously Michael came and worked on that as well. But I think because of how big it was as well, it's like yeah. another one of those where, I think wasn't it number one for the longest amount of time, like for a record number of weeks? It was number one in the UK for 16 weeks straight. Yes, which was a, I don't know if that still is a record, but it was a record at the time yeah, over here. Yeah, I mean, it may have been surpassed, but only by, you know, a week or two. Yeah. And also, if you think about it in terms of sales, definitely won't have been surpassed no. in the UK, because even if it had been in later years, the record sales wouldn't have backed it up, because that time was the height of people buying records and yeah. CDs. Yeah, of course. I didn't look at how much it actually sold, but it must have sold a tonne. I'll probably mention this again if we ever do this episode, but for Four Weddings and a Funeral, with that song, Lovers All Around, that got to 15 weeks at number one. And it would have potentially surpassed this one, but they actually deleted the single. So it wouldn't pass it because it was doing wet, 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 so much damage from a PR point of view, from a popularity, because people were so sick of the song. It probably would have done the same to Brian Adams, actually, because I don't feel like Brian Adams was ever as popular again after this. The closest he got was pairing up with Mel C for Baby When You're Gone. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, I think that got them to number one again, but... So it's a double-edged sword when you have a huge, huge hit song like yeah. this, when it's so big that it becomes destructive in the end. Yeah, I don't have any issue with the song itself. Unlike, you know... My Heart Will Go On was something I didn't like at the time no. and I don't like now. This There's nothing wrong with this particular song and what it is. And for a soppy love ballad, it's completely fine. Yeah. But it's just how inescapable it was. And, and the legacy of it is that even now you still hear it. You still hear yeah. it over here quite often, more often than you do many other songs, many other new songs. But yeah, the score itself, regardless of Brian Adams... I still love that score, and I can still play that score and get everything I need out of it. It's yeah. peak Michael Kamen. And some interesting people did work on that as well. I, when I was watching the documentary, uh, Don Davis was one of his uh, main orchestrators, and obviously yeah. he went on to do the scores through the Matrix trilogy. But yeah, very good score. Yeah. One other thing I just wanted to mention, and I really should have mentioned this with regards to the writing, one major one that I think I have to mention, and that is... I actually think that in terms of character arc, the film very weirdly starts at a halfway point in terms of Robin Hood's entire character and so much of his backstory and his relationship to the characters is told to us in like exposition scenes. Like, for example, his relationship with his father, his eventual relationship with Will Scarlet and how he manages to be his brother the last things that were said to each other before he went to war and, you know, before he went to the Crusades. And in a way, it feels like because the character that Robin was before he went to the Crusades is so important to who he is now, you know, in terms of the change, because we don't get to see that, it's just simply told to us who he was. It feels like we're missing an entire act and a half, like it's joining midway through the second act like he's been humbled by his time in a jerusalem prison and he returns to england a different man you know looking to make amends with the people from his past finds his father dead and has to avenge that 
And I guess as well, it it kind of falls into that category of them not knowing really what they wanted this film to be, tonally yeah, or yeah. not. And that seems to be an issue with most people that make Robin Hood films. I know that the Ridley Scott one had had that issue as well, where they um, they kept tinkering about with the script and it kept being one thing and then the other and back again. And then you, you end up filling in a lot of time with just expositionary dialogue and hoping that the audience take it on board as character development. Yeah, I remember that film when it was going to be called Nottingham. Yes, which sounded far more interesting. Yeah, because I remember even discussing it with, with you at the time how disappointed we were when it was just going to be made as a straight Robin Hood film. And I was like, oh, that sounds dull. Robin Hood with Russell Crowe, great. Yeah. It, it just ended up being exactly what we thought it was going to be. It was yeah. just a, a very dull film. I don't even think it was particularly terrible. It was just dull. Yeah, and uh, less said about the uh, Taron Edgerton film, <laughs> the better. Yeah. <laughs> that film seems to be like the flip side of the Guy Ritchie King Arthur film. It did, yeah. Where, Let's make these characters trendy! <laughs> yeah. Let's have them wearing, like, fucking Lacoste polo shirts and shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's have them shooting fucking crossbows like the shotguns and <laughs> what an odd film. Stop getting Robin wrong. <laughs> well, it's I it's one of those ones that every few years I hear of some sort of production where they're um, they're trying to do some meta take on Robin Hood. Every couple of years it's like, oh, we've got this idea of um, of doing Robin Hood in a modern day, but it's like a David Fincher type zodiac thing you know like or like they did that with peter pan as well where they were going to make one where peter pan is a serial killer and hook is the detective that's looking for this peter pan killer and that was a genuine thing that they were trying to make but yeah have we really got to that point in time where studios are so desperate for ip especially ones where they don't have to pay money for because they're like not copyrighted yeah but they're so desperate for just a known ip that they would do any old shit that comes away yeah yeah they would <laughs> we've got to that <laughs> yeah. point the now. answer is yes <laughs> yes <laughs> so in that respect we have to appreciate what this film was trying to do which was try and tell a fresh take of the story but with some level of appropriateness and lavishness even if it didn't quite work yeah because there's still a part of me that loves this type of film making because i do like films that are you know it's in the title i like films that are shot on film yeah films that look like film and it's fine for certain films but digital photography doesn't suit everything no and um there's a certain magic that you get with the films that are made in this way that has definitely been lost mm-hmm. me and my wife were watching love actually the day and i said to her that there's uh, only actually four years that separates that film with notting hill and that's a good comparison when it comes to even though they're both shot on film the advent of digital color grading yeah with like oh brother where art thou which is one of the first films to use that there's a big line of the sand yes. with that because with a film like robin hood it's a very colorful film but they are able to use. Notice in the um, the scenes with the sheriff and Mortiana, there's a lot of very liberal use of stylized lighting. Yes, yes, in the scene. So in, instead of creating a mood after the fact using digital color grading, they would actually do it in camera. Of course, you would using yeah. different kind of gels and lighting and all those kind of setups, or do something chemically. And that's something I kind of miss 
in a way because yeah. there's a certain magic to it that there is. you just don't get in the later films and also like digital films now. It would be built into like costumes and stuff like that, yeah. into set dressing. They would instantly have a a color palette that this is what this scene or this particular, and they would have to strike a consistency throughout the entire film. They could do some very slight tinkering and post, like you say, some kind of like chemical correction. But again, it does feel like the days when pre-production meant more because people had to do more before they started filming. And if you didn't, that's where film started to to hit issues and start to falter. I, I do think that we've got away from that period where filmmakers used to spend more time hammering this down, doing tests to get this right. We still get it with digital color grading. People still do make sure that you know there is a consistency there. But it's so much more easily changed now that it can be thrown out of the window at a moment's notice. And yeah. we have seen that happen several times recently as well. And it feels like things are shot in a more kind of like uniform way because we'll get the results in post. And you don't always do. Yeah, so even though I don't feel like the film works as a whole, that on a production level, I think it is a very nice example of the type of filmmaking that was being done at that time because yeah. I do actually think the production design and the costume design and the photography is great. There's very little use of opticals in this film. It's mainly in camera. Yeah. So it's mainly in the acting and like the performances and the rather sort of not very good script, but everything else is pretty good. Yeah. And that's why I said it's kind of a three-star movie, but I'd say most of those stars can be attributed to the filmmaking part of the... Absolutely. <laughs> the thing. Yeah. There are moments, there are flashes of cinematic flair in this film. Yeah, yeah. That I wish we got more of these days. It makes me sound so old, but I do. Like, for example, during the uh, the horse chase across the moorlands, away from uh, Michael Wincott's, was it, Guy of Gisborne? Yeah, yeah. There's a moment where Robin Hood's horse jumps over a wall, and it knocks a few stones away. And in this gap in the wall where the stones have fallen away, we can see in the distance Guy of Gisborne's men on the hill adjacent, chasing after them. And it's like, that's something that takes quite a lot of setting up, quite a lot of, uh, you know, getting the timing right and that kind of thing. It looks so good, and it's like an instant... It doesn't cost it doesn't cost a lot to get that right, but the creativity kind of lends it a real kind of, like, oomph, a real power. Yeah. We don't get shots like that anymore. Like, real kind of, like, stylistic, flurry shots like that. No, no. And just keeping things grounded in a way i mean it's not that they had much choice because they had to at the time but the most flashy it gets is when the camera follows the arrow which i think yes, is one of the yeah. only kind of optical shots which is yeah it's kind of cheesy but there's a certain kind of satisfaction about it i think yeah. that you get from it and there's the famous robin with the flaming bow and arrow Mm -hmm. shot and you definitely don't get shots like that these days jesus definitely no. wouldn't you no know, you I don't. don't think you'd be able to even achieve it with the kind of filmmaking tools that they have now or at least not in an in-camera way yeah yeah it would be yeah because you know we're talking about an era of film now where people's costumes are cgi <laughs> yeah exactly you don't have to decide what people are wearing it's just bizarre we're in a really weird place in filmmaking, I think, at the moment. Well, especially in terms of mainstream, big-budget filmmaking, we're in a very odd place. I remember a time of about, like, probably 10 years ago where I found out a film that I had saw had a CGI costume, and it was just, like, such an oddity. I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. And I can see <laughs> how they use that for the film's benefit. And then 10 years later, 
you know, they're doing it for just like the most simple, basic of fucking costumes, just because they can't be fucked to decide what people are gonna wear. You know? Yeah, they had no pre-production time. <laughs> it's just silly. <laughs> Again, we're going down to the politics of the poor CGI artists who have to do all this stuff. Of course they do, on a pittance. It's just awful, awful. Anyway, that's another time, because I'm pretty sure we'll we'll talk about that when we uh, talk about <laughs> next time's offering. We certainly will. But um, it's not a film that works, but it's not a film that I particularly like, hate or dislike or anything. It's just falls down in some of those central casting decisions that yeah. Kevin Costner factor really drags the film down because he's just so miscast in the role. Yeah. I don't even think you particularly have to lose Kevin Reynolds as a director. No, absolutely not. It's filmmaking feels fine. The blocking is great. You know, there are some real like old school filmmaking tactics that are used and utilized. Like even as far as the sets where you have backdrops on certain sets where it's extensions that are just painted on. Yeah. I love all that stuff and how you hide that in, in your block and that. There's a couple of shots where it's really obvious, but... There's definitely a, a Monty Python moment in this film towards early on where, you know, I will dine with my father in Nottingham and then you just want someone to go, it's only a Met painting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, before I ask of you the big question, I'll move over to the stats and facts. So yeah. this sums up how how this film has been received over the years. So in regards to the critical reception, the film has a 51% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is with a 5.6 out of 10 average rating by critics. And that's still with a healthy 55 reviews for this 1991 film. The critical review is once more from Roger Ebert, and he gave the film... I was expecting it to be like a shocking 4 out of 4. An amazing <laughs> film. It's actually just a middle of the line 2 out of 4. And he says, Much has been said about Kevin Costner's British accent or lack of in advanced publicity about the movie. Neither the accent nor the lack of the same bothered me in the slightest. What bothered me was that the filmmakers never found the right tone for Costner to use, no matter what his accent. He isn't joyous or robust or comical or heroic, but more of a thoughtful, civilised, socially responsible Robin Hood. Sort of a non-partisan saint who wants to preserve the kingdom for the absent Richard the Lionhearted. Which, yeah, I kind of get that absolutely yeah. completely. Yeah. The audience score for the film is 72% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 3.8 out of 5 average rating. And it has a 6.9 out of 10 rating on IMDb. And I completely understand why, because it's grown as being that kind of event movie at Christmas, as I mentioned. So a lot of people yeah. have a lot of nostalgia for this film now. Moving over to the box office for the film. The film had a budget of $48 million. As we mentioned, it went over budget during the making of. The worldwide gross for the film is $390 million. So that really paints a picture of it being a roaring success. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes me think, like, did you really have to cut those 12 minutes out? Would it really have made that difference? Yeah. The film opened, unsurprisingly, at number one in the box office. And uh, that week saw other films released, such as City Slickers, Backdraft, Jungle Fever, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's is Dead, What About Bob, <laughs> Soap Dish, Thelma and Louise, Only the Lonely, and at number 10 is Home Alone which was in its 31st week wow. of release. When did this film release? What date was it? June. <laughs> June. So, and Home Alone, the Christmas movie, Home Alone, is still in the top 10. Yeah. Wow. So there we go. 
so yeah, by and large, it may have not been a massive hit with the critics, but it clearly was a huge hit at the box office. So Andy, I've got to ask as well, would you recommend this film? With all that's been said, you seem to be in conflict a little bit. I'd say that 5 out of 10 rating is probably about right, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like a 50% film, because I can appreciate the filmmaking side and some of the supporting performances and obviously Alan Rickman, but it, it just gets so weighed down by the stiff, dull script and some of the very questionable performances yep. and casting choices. But yeah, I love the music, I love the look of the film and the costumes and everything else and some of the performances. So yeah, it's definitely like a a 50% film yeah. for me. So I'm not sure whether, I, I mean, and maybe like watch a compilation of Alan Rickman's performance <laughs> in the film <laughs> or maybe the last act of the film or something like that. But I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what I'm going to recommend Everyone watch that Pierce Brosnan documentary. It's Everybody should watch it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. A, that, is, that is a ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is a five out of five star. Yeah, production right there. <laughs> yeah. I would say, with regards to myself, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I would recommend. As I say, it's the most three star movie I've ever seen. That's yep. a, like <laughs> Empire rating, three out of five, and it's for all the reasons that you've It'll mentioned. Be an and, Empire um, four out of five. <laughs> Yeah, it probably would, wouldn't it? Yeah. But for Alan Rickman's film-saving performance as well, who is every bit of the rock star that he wanted to be, right down to his costuming, he walked on yeah. set and said, I, I want to be a costume... I I sorry, I want to be a uh, rock <laughs> star. And I, I want to be a costume, just put me... Just let me drape over someone. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I want to be a rock star, and I want to have white hair. And they were like, well, you can't have white hair, but we can make you look like a rock star. And then they gave him this outfit that makes him look like it's really sparkly, like Elvis. Yeah. There's something that's mentioned in the documentary that I'm surprised you haven't mentioned during this episode. But there is a specific costume in this film that has a relationship to Doctor Who. All right. One that has been pointed out by several other people. Uh, now, the costume that Mortiana wears, this kind of like sparkly cloak is actually from a Doctor Who episode that one of the villainous characters wore, and they just, the same costume, had just simply reused it, repurposed it for this. So the costume that she wears is from the uh, the Talons of Wang Chang. <gasps> yes, that's it. Magnus Greel, yeah. that character. Very problematic episode now when it comes to the depiction of Chinese people, but yeah, it's classic episode. I have just looked at it and like... Yes, maybe maybe not not one to watch, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the costume. It's wow. just the exact same costume he said he just used and repurposed here. Well, he must have had that costume for a long time because that was made like oh god, thirteen, fourteen years prior. So it's not like it was yeah, just it been, been in use. He must have had that in storage for an awful long time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, fourteen years. He must have been using it for like Halloween parties in between or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that kind of like helps the film because it looks a little bit tattered and rough yeah, around the yeah, edges yeah. as well. So it kind of aids that character. <laughs> so it does have a Doctor Who little reference there. Nice. But I would definitely recommend this film, but under certain like stipulations. So with an asterisk. <laughs> yeah, with like several asterisks next to it. It's well worth watching. It's a lot of fun. It's also not very good. And Kevin Costner is pretty bad in it. Yeah. But. For Alan Rickman and for Michael Kamen and for a lot of the filmmaking side of things, absolutely watch this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's everything we have to say on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. 
If you join us next time in the new year, 2023, we'll be doing another special, another first and last special, where we look at the first film in a franchise and the last film to be released. And the franchise in question that we'll be doing, Andy, would you like to introduce it? Uh, One of your favourites, I would say it is. <laughs> well, yeah, it's going to be Fast and Furious. Or The Fast and the yeah. Furious. Have you seen a single one of these films? I have not seen a single one of these films, so this is going to be very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, I pretty much know nothing about it because I have like 0% interest in those kind of films. So, yeah, interesting. Whereas I have seen every <laughs> single one. <laughs> so, yeah, fasten your seatbelts, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. But until then, I've been Gareth. And I will join my father in Nottingham. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Amidst the darkest glades of Sherwood Green, in the deepest part of the wood, some say can still be seen the ghost of Robin Hood. So, did Robin Hood really exist? Do we really want to know, after all, if it were to be proven that he did not exist, and that has never been proven? Who would fight for the underdog? Who would wage war against corruption and tyranny? Who would prove that chivalry is not dead? Robin was not only a celebrity, but also a character of mystery. He lives on in our children and in our children's children. 800 years ago, in a dark forest, in medieval England, there lived a hero. A man so remarkable that his name and his story became a legend. A legend that will live on forever. And tomorrow night, with the premiere of Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves, Kevin Cosner will be the next to string the bow, ignite our imaginations and continue the legacy. Long live Robin Hood. I'm Pierce Brosnan. Good night.